Hey, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to another episode of Tracks That Pass, the short form podcast that helps you keep up with your favorite development topics. This is your host, Christian Medina, and this week we're looking forward to finishing up our conversation on search engine optimization. Last week on episode 10 of the podcast, we started to talk about search engine optimization or SEO and why that's important to anybody wanting to make their website discoverable over the internet. The episode came from a conversation I had with Michael Kennedy from the Talk Python to Me podcast about the topic. In an attempt to keep the format of our podcast in short episodes, I decided to split the conversation into two. And last week you heard about what SEO is and why it matters, while this week you're going to hear about what it means to you as somebody writing code for a website and what things you should watch out for and what things you can do to better improve the discoverability of your web page. If you already listened to the full episode through Talk Python, you can still skip to the end of this one and get the extra tidbits of information that we were unable to cover in Michael's show. Let's get to it. So there's a speaking of Moz, like they, they wrote a pretty interesting article called the beginner's guide to SEO, which you're linking to, we'll put in the show notes. Yep. And we've heard of Maslow, Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You need shelter and then you need like human contact, you know, then you need That's food right. or maybe you need food, then shelter, right? But whatever, like eventually way, way up there is like entertainment and fulfillment. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. That's right. Yeah. So there's something like they put together like this for SEO and says like, you must have this to be ranked. And then like, you can be more competitive as you layer on more advanced stuff. Do you want to talk us through that? Yeah. Yeah. So we can go through the pyramid and some of these we'll dive into a little more detail in, in a little bit. So like right at the bottom, right, is uh, crawl accessibility. So that means that your website must be the search engine crawlers, robots that go out and just scrape the internet and formulate a model or whatever to find search results, um, your website needs to be crawlable, essentially. And that means you have to have good HTML and good things for, for those robots to actually be able to parse the information. Right. And that's a little bit like what I was talking about with the sitemap and the number of that's error right. pages versus the number of discovered pages. Right. But it also means like if you go to a part of your site is behind a login or a paywall or some other interaction that is blind to the world, right? That is no longer part of the search index of the world. And so you exactly. just got to like, it might be fine. That might be your personal account info or whatever, right? You don't want it to be. But sometimes I see people building sites in a way that I think, oh, you don't want to do that because Google's not going to get there. And that's a problem. Yeah. So that's, that's why single page web apps are uh, an interesting have an interesting situation when trying yes. to be searchable. So you'll find that a lot of, uh, like, say, uh, just to pick something like, say, Linode or whatever, and, and, and I'm not saying that they are a single-page web app, but you'll find that a lot of these companies that have consoles or something, that some, some application type of thing that's available through the website, um, they actually have a landing page. And then from the landing page, you can load up the, the web app. You can't have the whole thing be the web app or the stuff just won't, start, won't show up on the search engines. It's behind JavaScript. Exactly. If you look at view source of like a Vue.js app, it's entirely un underwhelming and it always looks the same because the data is not right. loaded yet, right? That's right. And in fact, it might even, might even count against you 
which is like the next ring in the uh, in the pyramid is uh, uh, having compelling content. The only thing that the search engine will find there is just JavaScript. So it's not yeah. going to know what any of that means or what the paragraphs are, what the information is, nothing. So yeah, I'm wondering it. if these days, if like when Google sees that, they're like, you know what, we have to fire up Selenium and hit this page to like get the answer right they may look for Vue.js, angular the, the couple popular ones and say we gotta yeah i'm sure they do we gotta do a little more they probably do but it can't be helping right like even if eventually it does figure it out i just feel like these spa apps cannot be helping their seo case no there is some stuff that's been built to help all of that i haven't looked too much into it but there are things to help that side of the world but yeah yeah okay so compelling content that's important it's yep. sometimes tricky to do I suspect like images, like if you try to tell the story with a picture instead of with words, that might actually hurt you a little bit in terms of SEO. But when you make that image tag, you can have enough information in the image tag, which also helps the rankings. Like in the title or the alt or something like that? The alts, yeah. Okay. Yep. So there's that. And then just like the size of the content, just general grammar stuff, how the paragraphs are broken up, how many, in fact, having content for multiple languages also counts for you. There's all kinds of stuff like that. And And if you're doing like international stuff like that, where you have like multiple versions of your site, that's like a whole new, like I wanted to do that recently because I wanted to, well, Spanish is actually my first language. So I wanted to write the site in Spanish and provide a Spanish (laughs) version of it. And I started to look into, wait, what about like the canonical stuff and like what's going to show up here? And it's like, there's all these rules. I was like, I don't have time to look at all this. (laughs) (laughs) It was already going to be a lot of work to rewrite it in a second language. And now you've got to like re-SEO it. And like not, yeah, that's right. and not, not just redo the SEO, but you got to make sure you don't hurt yourself, right? Because if it shows up right. in two languages, it could be worse than just having one if that's right. it thinks that's like copied, right? Yeah. When we're talking about this, you know, we're not just talking about like, do I have the right keywords, which is actually the next ring in the pyramid, you know, having, having the words that are searchable that represent what the article is about, right? But we're talking about like, just like HTML formatting. Right. If you don't have the right tags in the right places with the right properties, stuff doesn't get picked up correctly. And I mean, as a developer, I mean, it makes perfect sense. If somebody wrote some code to go and crawl this website, right? And, yeah. you know, they're Google. They're like, well, I'm going to look for this. If you don't put that in there, oh, well, right? You want me to rank you? Well, then put that in there. And <laughs> exactly. Google's got like, got it. they're all documented, all that stuff as you search around. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. Next up, I guess. Keyword optimize is out. Have, have we talked about that yet? In our- yeah, that's what we were just talking about. Yeah, okay. Then the, above that is the great user experience. Mm-hmm. Now we start getting a, a bit deeper into actual developer action. Yeah, and this is where the developer story starts to like really be your story around SEO. I mean, obviously, you've got to have crawl accessibility, right? If, if your site crashes, if it's unreliable, if it doesn't generate the sitemap quickly or correctly, then all those things are right? Like you're not even like alive on the hierarchy. You're at the bottom and you're not there. But here you have things like fast load speed and ease of use. And uh, the wording here is compelling UI on any device, but like the developer word is like um, a program. Yeah. Like viewports and like responsive is the word I was looking for. Responsive UI that, that like actually would look right on the device that's right now you're well into the web developer python developer side of the story and there is so much here and we can talk skip ahead a little bit 
around making your load times better. There's a bunch of tools. There's some. There's a website from Google called PageSpeed, uh, which you can go and plug in a URL, and it'll go do the these rankings for you, these uh, checks for you. Yeah. And then there's a tool called Lighthouse, which runs on Chrome. So if you have Chrome developer tools, you can get it to actually launch and run it locally. And so what it does right. is it, it analyzes a website, and you can ask it to do it do an analysis, assuming you're running from a desktop or assuming you're running from a mobile phone with a fast speed or assuming you're running from a mobile phone with a slow connection, right? And I'll do all this analysis and you'll get into a bunch of things like uh, what format are your images? You know, are you PNG, are you JPEG and all that, right? And then it turns out that do they have the right compression ratios? How big are they relative to the page? Are you loading a 2,000 pixel white image on a 400 pixel white page? You're just wasting people's time when you do that, right? Right, right. And when I logged into the Google search engine console that you talked about before, I got a big pop-up that said, mm-hmm. there's one of these domains I hadn't visited for a while. And uh, it said, your site has now been switched to mobile-first indexing. That's right. That's right. And one of the considerations is, does this page render good? on a mobile phone. And they also think, when they think about performance, I think a lot of developers, they think, okay, and I, I totally count myself among this group in the early days, and I'd like to hear your thoughts as well, is I go and I hit the server, how fast is the database, how fast is Pyramid, Flash, Django, whatever, getting out the door. Like, how quick am I getting, like, first byte to user, basically? And then that's kind of like, I'm done. Like, I've solved it. Like, I've, now it's down to the browser to deal, right? Yeah, but that's just the beginning. Right, that's what you um, learn apparently when you you try to like start oh, doing this yeah. analysis. Oh my right? goodness, yeah. I did my stuff. My stuff is a static page, so like yeah. I was like, oh yeah, this is <laughs> awesome. It just loads the page. But it's gonna blaze. Yeah, there's nothing else to worry about. One millisecond, we're good. <laughs> I'm good. So what did you get when you first put it into the Page Speed Insights, which is like the hosted version of Lighthouse? Do you remember? Uh, I was probably like in the 60s, yeah, or something like that. And so, so that has a ranking zero to 100, right? Yeah, exactly. So zero to 100. I put uh, training.talkpython.fm in there, and then talkpython, and then Python bytes and whatnot. And those sites are crazy fast in the way I described. Like the database out, the first byte out of you know the the server is really fast. It's like totally reasonable to have a page that's 10 milliseconds. And I'm like, well, how could it possibly be slow? So let's see what amazing numbers I get if I throw it in here. And I got like 50. And it says, which is on the bottom end of moderately slow. And I'm like, what, That's is right. that? what is this? What is going on? And so I spent three days going through the recommendations, like three, eight hour days working on one of the sites. And now I've got it up to, if I go to training.talkpython.fm, on mobile, I get 94 and on desktop, I get 100. Cool. Yeah. Nice. I'm, I'm in the and 90s as well now, yeah. finally. Yeah. And it, there's flexibility, right? Like if the server hasn't requested a page, it might be a slightly, there's like, there's some variability here. And it's even if you just rerun yeah. it. But what's interesting is the 94 is the, the mobile version, like how fast can, if you've got an image that has to be resized, it's one thing to do it on a high-end desktop, but if the phone has to resize it, that's going to hurt your ranking because it's like computationally slow for the phone to render the page. And there's all these different layers of stuff that you've got to look at. I mean, if you just loaded the image itself the wrong size, it's bigger. So you just, you just sent the phone extra data that it's not really needed, right? Yeah. So to stick with it, so there's a few pieces here to stick with the images. So the first thing that I, the Google stuff recommends is to use WebP as the format, yeah. not PNG, not JPEG, as a compression format for your images. And that's great. It works great. It's, you know, it's usually lower 
image sizes, which is why they recommend it. It's Google's proprietary <laughs> image format, right? That's right. Of course they're going to recommend it. So I was like, I did all this. I'm like, I got my stuff into the 90s. We'll get to the rest of it in a minute. I'm like talking to uh, a buddy at work that also runs some websites and stuff. And he pulls out his iPhone and goes to my website. It's like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Hey, what's up with your images? And I'm like, what do you mean? Safari doesn't render WebP because oh, Apple, right? Yeah. So that leads to you, in order to do this correctly, you can no longer use the image tag. You have to use the picture tag. There's a picture tag? This is like totally changing my, like blowing my mind. Yes. And the picture tag has fallbacks. So okay. I'm trying to find the good one I have on my site. But essentially, you can specify a list of images and you say, if the screen size is of this many pixels, load this image. If it's of this many pixels, load this image. If the, you know, whatever. And then in the end, if you can't load any of those, load this image. So right. I had like, so for every image in my website, and that's important for me. So in Tracks That Pass, we do illustrations and they come on like, I'm like, I want to load, you know, the 4,000 pixel illustration because it's really nice, right? Yeah, but obviously yeah. I can't. So I have four different files for every image. Each one optimized, you know, there's like a one at like, uh, I think it's uh, 1280 pixels. I do one in the 800s and one in the 400s. And then right. I automatically pick which one to use with the picture tag. And then I also have a PNG format for the people that, that are using Safari to render it. Yeah, that sounds really tricky, right? Because now you've got to have all these different types. And then how do you know about like the 404 missing image? Because you viewed it on a device that supports that. It, it selected a That's different right. format and whatnot. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I haven't gone do down you, that path on the i'm just going to export it as jpeg with a slightly lower quality and make sure the sizes like i might have multiple sizes that are all jpeg or like one's png and a bunch are smaller sure but i don't know like the the varied support it just it threw me off i'm just like i just don't know that i want to go down this path of having like unsupported image types that i've got to swap out take care of yeah that was an interesting adventure for me continuing down that you get the screen optimizations and the fallbacks with the picture tag yep but Outside of images, right, these days, people use CDNs a lot to load things that run on their website. So I have de delivered a static web page and I need jQuery to do something. I go link to some CDN that has jQuery. Well, that's yet another connection that client's browser needs to open. And that connection is going to open to a different server, which means you guys know how this works, right? <laughs> if I went to trackseppaz.org... I did a DNS query to figure out what IP address it was, open a TCP connection, download some data. If I'm talking about JavaScript, I'm, I'm then parsing that and loading it up, right? Right. Well, now if I, I have a, an extra script tag in there, now I have to do that same thing for whatever DNS is providing, whatever domain is providing that. So if that's coming from, uh, you know, Google Fonts, right? So that's gotta open do the dns query open up google fonts download the font do whatever parsing and show it in the website so for every css or script or external thing that loads into your page you're doing all of these things and that has an impact and that actually shows up and it counts against you regardless of whether it's a cdn link a second link yeah. on your site or what like it's just number of connections we got to do the more the worse yep. Yep. yeah it's more work for the client for the browser right yeah so so in order to help that around, there's a number of things that you can do in your header, in your HTML, 
that okay. will serve as uh, preloads. So there's a couple different commands. There's uh, the link tag, like you would add a style sheet or whatnot. But there's also there's a rel property that you can set to preload or preconnect. And preconnect means do the domain name resolution. So that means you do that once because ahead of time, like for example, the Google Analytics that get added to my website, I do a preconnect to Google Analytics so that, that all of that is resolved. The TCP connection is already open at the start of the page. And by the, by the time it makes it all the way to the bottom and actually needs to load something, it just needs to go and, and get data versus having to do right it's probably done the dns resolve and actually already done the ssl exchange that's right the the, the port opening to the server even maybe uh they're just waiting to issue the http get yep and for that one i needed to pre-connect because to get changes slightly i'm looking at dumping the whole google analytics stuff so at some point that that's a different conversation we should also have (laughs) i've since dumped them so yeah i hear you just a short reminder that this episode is brought to you by us at Try Accept Pass. We run our website, tryacceptpass.org, with more articles on real-world software. When you swing by, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list because we do giveaways here and there. At the moment, we're giving out course codes to the 100 Days of Web course written by the folks from PyBytes and TalkPython Training. I also wanted to give a quick shout out to TalkPython and TalkPython Training. I think Michael's doing a great job with uh, his uh, products there. So feel free to stop by their website if you're interested in courses or more information about Python and the things that make it great. There's also a preload command you can give out, which actually essentially just loads the file that you say. It just loads it and keeps it in memory, but doesn't use it immediately it's just there and then when you run into it in the rest of the document then it uses it so i use that for like the fonts the fonts get preloaded and some javascript gets preloaded and stuff like that yeah i just recently saw my first page that was like full of these preloads and pre-connects and i'm like oh this is a thing that i didn't know about how interesting and it's clearly like we're going to set this up and fire these off and like as soon as you can get them as soon as you got a break and loading stuff go get these and yeah that seems seems pretty cool you know another one that's will probably basically not help you on PageSpeed, on, on the Google PageSpeed site, but will really make your users happy is just browser caching. Yes. And there's different aspects of that and different problems that it generates. You can give the browser instructions on what to cache and how long to cache it for. Yeah. And the PageSpeed stuff actually takes that into consideration for how long you're caching things. Yeah. I actually took advantage. So I have like a, a set default kind of thing but i also took advantage of using i use cloudflare in front of the website so i can dynamically change that in cloudflare depending on what it is so i can i can add like rules that say well tell our clients to cache the images for a year right because i'm not going to change the image for an article right only cache the html for a week or something like that yeah interesting yeah, on mine, I have it. Every CSS, JavaScript, image, everything is cached, I think, for a year. Yeah. And they recommend a really high number. Yeah. And it's really good in terms of like speed. Like I was at a hotel in Israel and trying to get back to some sites. You know, so they were all just dragging. And mine is like zip, 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 because it just exchanges just the HTML and nothing else, right? Yep. One connection, everything else is out of the browser. I'm like, this is really super cool. It's working well. The problem is, if you change anything, like you update your style, then it's all busted, right? That's where a question mark and yes. some hash comes exactly. into play. 
I have a whole infrastructure that says, here's the URL and on the server side, generate a hash, like uh-huh. cache ID equals whatever the hash is. And if that file changes, it's going to rehash it. So it's an entirely different thing that's cached again for a year. Like it might use up you know, another 200K of somebody's browser cache, but who cares, right? It's memory's cheap. Yeah, sure. So on that, right, there's, aside from the caching, right, don't forget that any JavaScript or CSS that you give out to your customers, you want that to be minimized, right? And that yes. means, what, is, yes. what does minimization mean? That means removes all of the spaces, for example. Yeah. You also want fewification, which is a bundling, That's right. right. You want, want less of them and you want them to be smaller taken as an aggregate. That's right. And so then like there are minimizers. Google has a, a tool that you can use for minimizing CSS and JavaScript. And it's not just removing spaces, but it also like in the case of JavaScript, it'll rename all your variables. Oh, interesting. Okay. So it does a little bit of obfuscation, right? So if you have a, like as a developer, you want to have descriptive variables, but the tools will actually take that variable name down to one letter as much as you can. Okay. So you'll find your users.username, users.email, whatever, can turn into a.b, a.c. Right, right, right. Yeah, which can, can be significant, yeah, for the right app. Just the whole point of that is to reduce the size of the file that you're transferring to right. the clients. Right. right, you want to reduce the size, and if you can, you want to bundle them. That doesn't always work because sometimes, like, the JavaScript might refer to a relative path back to, like, a like an image or a CSS file or something. And then like, if you yeah. bundle them up, up the directory, then they get all broken. I had something like that with font. Awesome. I had to stop. I'd like unbundle mm-hmm. font awesome or something. Cause it was, it couldn't find pieces of itself. There's some tricky stuff as it refers between files. Yes. But theoretically, which is contrary to usual programming practices, <laughs> the more that you can put all of this stuff in the one file, right? So if yeah. you can combine, so there's a, the tools will do that for you too. If you load jQuery and Font Awesome and, you know, Bootstrap and a bunch of JavaScript and then the JavaScript for your website, you can run it for these tools and it'll put everything into one file and then minimize it. Yeah. And so then you're transferring one thing, which means one TCP connection, one request, and you're just moving data back. Well, and say one thing that I came across and started using exactly in this space when I was going down the Lighthouse thing is it said, you're making 26 requests for JavaScript and CSS. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm done. Like, I, there's nothing <laughs> I can do to, like, how can I fix this, right? And I knew about bundling, but I'm like, this is going to be a lot of trouble. Because I, I like to have small CSS files. Like, this part of the site has its own CSS file, so I'm, it's not huge and I, I can reasonably deal with it, right? But, but Google was hating on it because it's like, here's another request. I'm like, yeah, but it's cached for a year, but like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> my page rank is what they say and it's the first request not the cache request so whatever yep along those lines there's a uh, progressive web apps yeah if folks have heard about that so a trace that pass is a pwa progressive web app i think that's i might disable that but what that does is it makes your you can write a little bit of javascript that will make your website run even when your site is not online mm-hmm. as much as possible and it can be executed like if you have a chromebook or an android phone or an iphone you can actually make a shortcut to the site so you'll have like a a, an icon just for your site you can just click it and and it'll come online and all that javascript does is it registers what they call a worker and the every request that the web page makes for content goes through this worker Mm. essentially and the worker 
you can do whatever you want with it. But the main point is the worker keeps a local cache and the worker knows what to pre-cache. So when your website oh, comes online, it says load all these images for you. And then for every request, lo- go get them and load it into a cache that gets stored in local storage in your web pages. You can see it all in developer tools. And so then, you know, that makes your website run fast and you can even have an off, you have to have an offline page. So if you need to like fetch the content and you can't get to it, you can provide the users and like, oh, I can't get to the internet right now. This is what it looks like. Okay. Yeah, that's really cool. What I came across was this thing called Web Assets, all one word. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a Python library that does that bundling and minification you're talking about. It uses JSMin and CSSMin, which are Python packages that mm. do that for JS and you know, JavaScript yep. and CSS. And so now when my site starts, it just does like a quick check. Hey, do I need to rebuild the one giant CSS and JavaScript files? So I don't have to remember to take it and like, oh, I forgot to run that. So that's out of date. Like, it's just like at the start, it goes, here's the hashes of the files. Is there anything new? Let's regenerate them. And it's kind of just cool. all automatic, right? So that's a pretty good set of Python tools. Nice. Yeah. I'll, I knew about this at work. I actually hadn't thought about looking at that for the stuff I have at home for some reason. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to go, I'll have to go see it might help me out with a few things. I have a really quick one that will totally help huh? people. This one only works on Mac OS. Okay. But I think they link to other options on their site. And Image Optim, I am AJ, like Image O P T I M, and what it is is like a, a just a a collection of algorithms that do lossless recompression and reencoding of images. Okay, right. So like you visually, literally, there's no visual change to what's happening, but it might reencode it. Like it might change the color spectrum for a PNG because it realizes only 256 oh, colors. That's pretty cool, right? And so what you can do is you can take just the root of your website and throw it at this. It'll traverse the directories, find all the things, and in place, replace them with their optimized but unchanged version. Nice. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I did this on uh, my sites, and I got like 40% less. It went from like 20 megs of images to, I don't know, whatever that was, like nine. And you just it takes forever, but you just literally drag, drop, wait, done. Cool. I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah. So I was going to say on the image side, I use, I was talking about WebP earlier. I forgot to mention it. I use CWebP, which is, you can just okay. go install it and uh, it'll produce WebP images and you can have it resize the images for you. You feed it like a JPEG and PNG and it out, it'll put out um, of that kind. Yeah. And you can define what quality you want and what size you want for the image. So you even resize it automatically for you. Cool. Yeah. Those are, I like those because they're so easy. Like they, they take no work and they're like, as long as you got your stuff in GitHub checked in source control like you're not in real danger of messing up stuff yeah yeah that's right that's right yeah yeah all right chris we're getting kind of closer to the end of the show running short on time i feel like we've just scratched the surface though you know yeah what else uh like quickly what else should we like point out for folks that they should go check out we can talk about a few pieces so in google search so okay trying to figure out which one works best so you put a link in twitter twitter pulls up like a little card with uh, an image and a little summary of the website or whatever it is that you like. Right. For the cool sites, it does, right? Yeah, right. Like ours, right? Exactly. So all that is configured through meta tags and there's actually a standard, there's a Twitter. It seems like Twitter came first and or maybe just Twitter was different. Everyone else seemed to grab it or whatever, right? Yeah, there's a thing that's called Open Graph that describes a set of meta tags you can put into your website to provide a title, a description, a summary, what image you want to use for that little uh, summary, a bunch of stuff like that. 
and keywords as well, which is also important. So all those meta tags you have to put in there because not just it works for Twitter, but it works for your search engine and as part of the of the rankings. Yeah, that's awesome. And it definitely helps your stuff look more professional when anybody happens to grab it and that's share right. it on social, right? It's it's got this cool visual, like you've structured how it looks rather than just depending on like a weird truncated URL. Yeah, exactly. And along the same lines, there's actually a whole other standard called JSON-LD, okay. which is used to essentially provide a JSON version of the stuff in your website, in your page. Hmm. So, for example, when you go to Tricep Pass, in the main index, I can say, uh, I am a website of articles, and here are all the articles and the titles and links and all that stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's parsed by search engines. But not just that, that information is actually used to generate the little cards that show up in the Google searches. You know, if you search for a recipe, right, you'll sometimes right, right. have the little... And all of that stuff has higher priority than the rest of the content because it shows up up top in your, right. in your search results, right? And that is actually used if you go to the Google search console. There's a little discovery section on the left side which is part of like if you're on an Android device and it's one of the Google built-in things in there and it shows content that Google thinks you'd be interested in. If you have these things available, then it shows up in Discovery a little bit more. Oh, cool. You can characterize your website with it. You can say it's articles, it's recipes, it's video or whatever. There's, there's like all this stuff to help do that. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so that's JSON LD, huh? That was a piece that's important. JSON LD. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes as well so people can have that. Oh, yep. man. So many things. It's so awesome. And the thing is, it's rewarding. If you get this right, you know, people just engage with you and your content more or your products or whatever. And it's awesome. Yep. Exactly. All right, Chris, we have to leave it here. But, uh, you know, maybe it'll have to be a, a second edition to like dive deeper into this. All right. So that's where I left off my conversation with Michael. But let's try to expand a little bit more on it and chat a bit about other pieces that we did not discuss. To continue on the Twitter card topic, there's a Twitter card validator website that you can go to. You can pop in your URL in there and you will see a representation of what your Twitter card would look like if your website was loaded through uh, the, the Twitter timeline. You can also use it if you updated the website. The way most of these things work is that once you pop in a URL, the social media company, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, all these guys do the same thing. They'll cache a representation of that URL you put in there. But you can use the Twitter card validator to kind of refresh that cache, at least on the Twitter side. Um, LinkedIn has a similar system as well. And then talking about the specifics of how, of how you put that on a, on a website, there's a number of meta tags that you add to the header of your HTML. Specifically, there's two types. There's meta tags with properties called name, where name is a key that is parsed by the robots at Twitter or whatever social media site we're talking about. But there's also a property called property, which also have, can have uh, information parsed by these robots as well. Uh, the ones that I use 
to speak to Twitter specifically are names, properties set to Twitter colon site, Twitter colon creator, or Twitter colon card, which gives information about how to display that card in the Twitter timeline. Uh, pointing back to Open Graph, the ones that they define are property properties in the meta tag uh, that start with OG. So it's OG colon URL, title, description, or image to help you set um, extra information about the content of the website. Now, those title and description tags, there's also meta tags with the name property set to description uh, or title or even keywords. And those are also used by search engines to determine what your website is about. And there's actually information out on the internet about the optimal information that you should put into these tags, especially the title tag. There's specific sizes that are more optimal because some of that information gets pulled into Google search and displayed in your, in your result entry. And there's only so many characters that show up in there. So there's some there about the psychology for getting clicks out of that and about the size of it to help uh, prioritize it for the search engines. If it's too long, SEO might prioritize it lower. If it's too short, same thing. Now, talking about the JSON-LD format, the way you put that information into your HTML is to add a script tag. I put it in the head as well. And the type of it is application slash LD plus JSON. And in the contents is essentially JSON. There's no JavaScript here. It's just JSON content with a couple of properties in there. And the, the format of the properties are dependent on the type of website that you are presenting and, and the information, the content of the website. So in my case, the homepage, for example, is of type item list. And then you can have a, an extra property that defines each element in the list. So my homepage links to the most recent articles the item list has that exact same information, but essentially in JSON, which with with summaries for the title and the, the contents and the images for those articles. Each item in it is of type list item and uh, contains a bunch of extra information. All of the details about how that works is defined in the JSON LD spec. The descriptors are are online on the schema.org website. Now that specification is actually quite large and Google robots don't support all of that information. So you have to actually go to Google's website with their spec of the attributes and item types that they support. Like for example, they, they don't have support for an audio type, but they do for video. That site also explains how Google search results will display the different item types that you're using to describe your website with. Now, another point that comes up in the discoverability of websites is that a site that's built using Google's AMP framework is actually rated higher. You can think of it like React or uh, Vue. It's essentially a JavaScript framework designed by Google that gives you the basis uh, of, of a website. But the difference 
the difference is that they have optimized the JavaScript that enables it and even distributed it with their own servers. So, and the optimizations are all built for uh, both mobile and uh, uh, normal desktop, but such that it's uh, reconfigurable. But the main idea is to provide a better mobile experience for your customers. The AMP pages, I looked at implementing my website as an AMP page, but it's just too many changes and uh, could lead to other issues with um, SEO in general. So I thought, so it's common actually to just have a different site from the main one that you show that is the one that you point to when you're in a a uh, environment that greatly benefits from AMP and like Chrome will automatically realize that and you can direct it there. You can go online and read a bit more. Uh, they have widgets for all the regular stuff. It's just one more thing to learn. So I haven't been able to uh, make the time for that yet. All right, so let's sum up all the different things we touched on. If you want to optimize your website so that it comes up easily in Google searches so that you can maximize the amount of visitors you receive, you need to pay attention to the following items. Reduce the website load time as much as possible. That involves minimizing your JavaScript and your HTML with obfuscation so that you get you use shorter names for your variables optimize your image formats for ones that uh, Google prefers usually WebP um, but don't forget to pay attention to uh, Safari and optimize your images for the viewport that you are working with which means use the picture tag instead of the IMG tag make better use of the link tags to perform pre-connects and preloads of the different aspects of the content that you're displaying so that you're optimizing the network connection that your that your clients browsers need to make pay attention to caching and the time to live that you're returning with each item in the cache there's different rules for different pieces and you want to cache images as much as possible, the Google Lighthouse and PageSpeed tools will help you with that. Try to leverage CDNs as much as possible, but try to do it while bundling all of the assets that you're delivering as part of your web page together as a single file or a, a small subset of files. Um, don't forget about progressive web apps and the advantages that those bring. And think about the parsing of the content of your website such that other services where your site will be shared, like Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, etc., can actually pull the information that you need and formulate these uh, pretty preview cards for uh, when, when your site is shared in their 
respective um, timelines. For that, there is the open graph set of attributes and tags that you can use and the Twitter card specific ones. Don't uh, ignore the JSON-LD parameters as well because those will also help you in the Google search results in order to present customers with uh, pretty cards. And as long as these cards show up in search results, those are usually prioritized higher. The other piece that this affects is the discover section of Android, and it'll help your website show up there as well. Don't forget to use the proper robots tags such that you can tell the search engine crawlers how to crawl your website and not to crawl it if you're if you're on a test page or something like that where you're on a staging environment versus a production environment use uh links appropriately so that you can properly reference the information that you've already built in your website from external sites so that the search engines know that you're not duplicating someone else's content that they're actually in working in conjunction with you because you own the base content meaning use canonical links when people uh, when duplicating your website in other locations like dev.2 or something like that if you're linking to external sites that you don't know a lot of or aren't necessarily endorsing, uh, add the nofollow property to your links so that there's a little bit of a disassociation there. Um, all of these things help with your domain authority and your page authority. Uh, don't forget to optimize the size and content of your title meta tags and your description meta tags and your keywords meta tags. If you don't have those, you're definitely going to be ranked lower. And um, yep, don't forget to read up on SEO. There is a lot of stuff. This is one of those things where trial and error just takes too long. So you have to be read up on it and done your research first so that you minimize the number of iterations that you have to do uh, to perform your optimization. Hope this has been helpful for everybody. This is definitely a longer episode than I thought it would be. But uh, here we are. And uh, have fun and keep on tinkering. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tracks That Pass. If you liked it, feel free to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. iTunes is the SEO gate for podcasts. If you're interested in us covering anything in particular, leave us a tweet at Tracks That Pass. And don't forget to sign up for our mailing lists to stay up to date with our latest and greatest. This is Christian Medina wishing you good times and good tinkering.